My name is Lene McClellan, and I'm a salon owner in Chelsea, Michigan, and the creator of Radioactive. I've been inspired by the people I get to talk to every day to create a platform for those in and around our community to tell their stories, share what's important to them, and help us uncover what makes us human. Visit RadioactiveChelsea.com to see how you can get involved. Thank you for joining me for this installment of Radioactive. My guest is Michelle Massey-Barnes, mother, business owner, and active community member. She shares her story of what becomes the adolescent diagnosis of her son with autism spectrum disorder. She intricately describes the nightmare of navigating the mental health system and the new challenges they are currently facing in light of the coronavirus pandemic. During the time of our scheduled recording, her son was admitted to the hospital, and so she trusted me to narrate her story. It is with great honor and humility I share with you Michelle's words. We just passed the one-year mark of the month things started to completely fall apart. If I had known how deep and dark the year to come was going to be, I think I wouldn't have made it through. I was away for work when the school called my husband and told him they were concerned about our eighth grade son, Logan. It was mid-February 2019, and Logan had not turned in any homework since returning to school after break. His attitude had completely changed, and he was showing very little interest in school, friendships, or extracurricular activities. We were worried. We wanted help. In the years since then, we have honestly made very little progress. I am sharing this story with you because I want you to know what it is like to navigate our mental health system. When people say our mental health system is broken, I want you to understand what it means. Although this is a story and the experiences of our family, I have talked with countless other families that have experienced similar and even more frustrating mental health situations. I'm sharing this story with you so you can begin to understand the incredible distances families need to travel in order to obtain services for their children. I want you to know because if everyone knows, maybe we can all play some small part and make change happen. If no one knows, nothing will ever change because no one will ever know anything is wrong. And so I begin. In that year that has passed, we have had eight different psychiatric teams, four different social workers, five different therapists, three neurologists, and two pediatricians. Between day treatment programs and inpatient stays, Logan has spent over 100 days in the hospital in the last year. He does not like being in the hospital, but the way he feels inside is often worse than an inpatient stay. Over the last year, we have quickly learned that hospitals are filled with very good doctors, nurses, and staff, and they don't necessarily agree with one another, and they don't necessarily agree with the outpatient team. There may not even be an outpatient team in place, but you're still going to get discharged, probably even tomorrow. It's not their fault. It's the way the system works. We have sat through countless meetings where a slew of possible diagnostic explanations have been discussed. Unspecified mood disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, trauma, ASD, or autism spectrum disorder, bipolar, delusional disorder, maybe it's even schizophrenia. There have been medication trials, medication changes, and downright medication disasters. After Logan's first hospitalization, he was started on two medications that needed to be increased over time 
by a psychiatrist. But he didn't have a psychiatrist. I called every psychiatrist in the area, and I was told there was a wait. Some had a six-month wait, others a nine-month, while the most popular had waits of 12 months or longer. You call a number, and you leave a message. The assessment coordinator calls you back at some point, generally within 24 hours. If you miss the call, it could be another 24 hours before the assessment coordinator calls again, only to tell you it will be six to nine months before your child can be seen. Somehow, on one of the many, many calls I made, I begged and pleaded with the nurse to hear me out and to not send me back to an assessment coordinator. She passed my desperate plea onto a psychiatrist who agreed to take the case. It was an incredible win that should have been an everyday activity. When you are calling and asking around for a psychiatrist, the assessment team asks if your child has a therapist. It's kind of a trick question. At first, I made the mistake of saying that Logan did have a therapist because I thought of the social worker through the pediatrician's office as a therapist. She was providing therapy even though her official role was case manager. This small mix-up proved problematic when it came to securing a psychiatrist because most practices that take private insurance require that you see a therapist in the same practice as the psychiatrist that you are going to work with. In the beginning, practices were asking if my son had a therapist, and I was saying yes, and then they were telling me that they didn't have availability. It happened multiple times. I called the pediatrician and told her what was happening. She explained that these practices require you to work with their therapists, and when they asked me this question, I needed to clarify that Logan has a case manager, but not a therapist. In theory, this policy makes good sense because it allows a practice to streamline care and it opens lines of communication about treatment. It is meant to ensure continuity of care. In reality, it means breaking established therapeutic bonds in order to start seeing a psychiatrist. Should that psychiatrist not work out for whatever reason, maybe even because you end up needing a psychiatrist that specializes in a specific area, you will likely have to start over with a new therapist once you find a new psychiatrist. If you like your psychiatrist but your therapist isn't a good fit, you are really stuck. We were this stuck once. We had a psychiatrist, but the practice did not have any therapists that specialized in our son's diagnosis. One therapist actually told me we weren't in crisis at all. Remember, he went on to spend 100 days in the hospital. She added that we needed to think more positively and have family meetings that focused on good things. I immediately canceled all scheduled meetings with that therapist. If you think that sounds difficult, try getting an evaluation for autism. Blue Cross Blue Shield has one of the most complex sets of diagnostic criteria that have to be met during at least three different appointments before you can begin service. Sometimes you can apply for a bridge so that you can start services before the evaluation is complete, so long as you have a provisional diagnosis of ASD, or Autism Spectrum Disorder, what we used to refer to as autism. Blue Cross has a very limited list of preferred providers that must complete the assessments or Blue Cross will not consider the diagnosis valid. It took at least four months to even find this information out and get the list of preferred providers. This was before the first hospitalization. We started calling for appointments. 
We were told at least a year, probably two years. U of M honestly told me it would be likely three to five years for a full neuropsych evaluation, including an autism assessment. In four years, Logan will be 18, and we would have completely missed the window for adolescent care. Fast forward to Logan's first inpatient hospitalization. Your child's first inpatient stay is horrible. Your world is breaking into pieces, and you have no idea what will happen next. We were newbies to a system, and we had high hopes that it would help our son. When you need an emergency psychiatric evaluation, if there is one available in your community, you go to the psychiatric emergency room. At U of M, this emergency room is referred to as PES, or Psychiatric Emergency Services. At U of M, the waiting room is for both adults and children. It's not like the regular ER. You don't get triaged and sent to an individual room until you see the doctor. You literally sit in the waiting room with a wide variety of people that are sitting, waiting, texting, crying, yelling, talking to voices, or watching HDTV that plays endlessly all night long. You can't have any strings. If you are the patient and you wear drawstring pants, you have to change into hospital clothes or have security cut the drawstring out of your pants. No belts. I'm sorry if your pants fall down. Nothing you could use to hurt yourself or others. Power cords are also not allowed because of the risk of strangulation. You can't charge your computer or your cell phone unless you know to bring a power bank and you know to charge your device secretly in your bag. When the waiting room gets busy, each patient can have only one parent or support person with them. The other parent can go upstairs to the surgery waiting room where you're allowed to plug your phone into the wall. The first time we went to PES, we waited in the stiff, uncomfortable chairs near the sign that said, fresh ice water, please help yourself. How nice, I thought, having no idea that there would be stretches of hours at a time when no ice water would be available. I also had no idea how many hours I would spend in those chairs noticing when the ice water was and wasn't there. First you fill out paperwork, and then you wait. Then the patient sees the nurse for an intake, and then you wait again. Then the patient is taken to see a social worker. More waiting. The parents talk to the social worker. You wait. A doctor assesses the patient. You again wait your turn. A doctor talks to the parents, more waiting, and finally, a decision is made. If your child is admitted, a bed search takes place. Your child could be placed anywhere in the state of Michigan that has an open bed. Anywhere. The truth is, there is not enough beds in the whole state to help all of the children and adolescents in need. Sometimes there are no beds available anywhere, and the kids are safely planned at home. They agree that they can keep themselves safe or ask for help before hurting themselves or someone else. The child goes home. The parents become crisis managers. Ideally, a bed is available upstairs at U of M. I say ideally not only because U of M is a good hospital, but also because it is close by and you can attend family therapy appointments in person or you can visit your child. Also, if your child is accepted to a unit halfway across the state at 4.30 a.m., your child is transferred by ambulance. Without sleep, you follow the ambulance to the hospital to sign paperwork. Then you drive home without falling asleep. Sometimes, a bed is projected to become available upstairs on the unit the next morning, so you spend the night in the waiting room, waiting. 
One time, there were no beds available anywhere in the state, and we spent five days in the waiting room of PES as unsuccessful bed searches were performed. Our first time in PES, I cringed when I saw people there with pillows and blankets. Ew, I thought. Who would want their bedding touching whatever germs were living in the carpet of the waiting room? Rookie mistake. The first time I spent the night in PES, I wished I had a pillow, and I ended up sleeping on the floor without a blanket, forgetting all about the germ-ridden perils of the emergency room floor. Our first time to PES, we waited in the waiting room, and finally the decision was made. Logan should be admitted. There was a bed available upstairs on the unit. If you think this means you head right up to the unit, think again. This is when the insurance paperwork begins. Hours later, you start to talk about transfer to the unit. Hours after that, you are finally transferred, unless there's a shift change. Then you wait longer. We were positive and hopeful during Logan's first stay. We knew that inpatient was a way to expedite the otherwise multi-year-long wait to an ASD assessment. Partway through his first stay, the unit told us they weren't going to have him assessed for ASD after all. He gets along well with his peers, and he is developing good rapport with them. They were simply planning to discharge him. I realized the missing ice water next to the sign that said, Fresh ice water, please help yourself, was only the beginning of breakdowns across an entire mental health system. I want to be really clear here. The breakdown is not at the one hospital that we happen to be at. In fact, they likely handle things better than many hospitals. The breakdown is built into the mental health system, and these breakdowns are happening across the United States. I cannot speak to other counties, but I can say our mental health system is filled with some of the best and most caring practitioners you can imagine, but the roadblocks and barriers to accessing services are often insurmountable. That's where we were. No ASD assessment at inpatient meant no change in treatment plans, and we were to return back to a multi-year wait. The hospital wanted to discharge Logan. They encouraged us to find an outpatient therapist. Nothing has changed, I insisted. We only do crisis stabilization, they explained, and they are right. This is all the insurance will cover, acute crisis stabilization, nothing more. But nothing has changed, I insisted. The second you discharge him, we are going right back to where we were. You can bring him back if you're concerned that he's a risk to himself or others, they explained. We were already concerned that he was a risk to himself and others. We pushed. We made phone calls. I filed a grievance. I called the psychiatrist and basically everyone I knew, and I asked for help. I don't know if any of this is what actually helped, but the hospital did end up bringing in the ASD specialist. She evaluated him, and it was determined that he met the criteria for autism spectrum disorder, and they told us this at his discharge meeting. He was given a provisional autism diagnosis. In theory, we should have been able to get the bridge to start services, but we waited 12 weeks, I don't know, maybe longer, to get the paperwork from inpatient that we needed to file with the insurance company before we could apply for a bridge. I called the hospital multiple times asking for the paperwork. The insurance company called. The therapist we wanted to work with called. We called and called and called. Person one would answer the phone cheery and helpful, 
Person one wouldn't be able to answer my questions. I would get sent to person two. Person two was a little less cheery, and to be fair, so was I. Person two would send me to someone's voicemail, and my request would get lost in the abyss. I finally got the phone number to the doctor who did the assessment while Logan was in the hospital. She was baffled that we hadn't started services three months later. She was even more baffled that we didn't have the paperwork. She sent it directly to the therapist. During high-intensity crisis times, my phone rings all day long. I answer the phone, and while I'm talking, it rings three more times. Someone wants an appointment, an update, or a piece of paperwork. I hang up. Before I can go to the bathroom, the phone rings again, and at least three calls come in while I'm on the phone. The voicemails collect. My mailbox is 95% full. The next thing I know is it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I am in my pajamas still, and I haven't left my chair. My tea bags are still steeping in the cup of hot water I boiled hours ago. My mom is calling me and texting me and sending me Facebook messages because she loves all of us. She's worried and she wants an update, but still in my chair, I slump over and rest my forehead on the table and fall asleep. My day of phone calls ends at 4 p.m. when the younger two kids come home and want their mom. They are upset and disoriented too. When the younger kids go to sleep, I research a list of calls to make the next day. I collapse, exhausted, before my list is complete. In the morning, I have to remind myself that I cannot start calling cell phone numbers at 7 a.m. I have frequently called NAMI, the Autism Alliance of Michigan, and the Michigan Protection and Advocacy Services. The Association for Children's Mental Health is an incredible advocacy organization that has offered me so much help and support. The case manager at the insurance company calls every couple of days while Logan is in the hospital. In terms of arriving at this diagnosis, there is another dynamic I would like to speak to. For us, Logan's parents, this diagnosis is a positive thing. It means that we can access services that are otherwise unavailable. Quite honestly, these services help with so much more than autism, but because of therapeutic and billing complications, you have to have an ASD diagnosis in order to get them approved. Logan is anything but happy about this diagnosis. If the world looked at autism and understood that it presents in so many different individual ways, this might be easier for him. If people heard the word autism and thought of the unique and incredible people behind the diagnosis and not just the stereotypical limitations, it might not feel so bad. But instead, Logan feels like this diagnosis tells him how to act and how to feel, and actually how not to feel. He feels like people are going to treat him differently, and the truth is, they probably will. Logan's incredibly articulate, he's very social, and he enjoys being with people. He's smart, and his ability to repair and maintain small engines is downright amazing. No one taught him how to do it, he just thinks mechanically. Even if he had a completely different set of characteristics, and he wasn't verbal, and he couldn't think three-dimensionally and repair engines, he would still be a unique human soul, and we would love him unconditionally, just the same. Would the world greet him in the same way? In my experience, the answer to that question depends on who you talk to. We personally don't look at this diagnosis as anything more than the three letters that guarantees that pretty amazing people get to work with him and our family. It gives us some overall guidance on things to try next. 
but the real criteria for success is how helpful Logan finds the different strategies and treatments that are offered. Nurses, teachers, and well-meaning parents tell you that you are something that you feel you are greater than. It's more than just painful. It's actually traumatic. In general, there is some confusion over the reason that Logan requires hospitalization. Now, a year later, after all the assessments are complete, it seems that the emotional and behavioral complications stem from the collision of autism and puberty. But the honest truth is all of us are making the most educated assessments possible to describe a very complicated situation. The one thing we can all agree on is none of this is Logan's fault. We used to call high-functioning autism Asperger's. Now we don't even call it autism, let alone high-functioning. We simply call it ASD, or Autism Spectrum Disorder. It's now understood as a spectrum of conditions that impact everyone in a different way. Difficulty managing stressors, rigid thinking, anxiety, and trouble paying attention are common challenges. Symptoms can exacerbate during puberty. Kids that are so caring, social, doing well in school, and working hard to keep everything together can suddenly spiral out of control as the puberty brain collides with the already differently wired ASD brain. I am sure it doesn't happen to every adolescent with ASD, but it does happen. I am here to tell you that no matter how you look at the collision, there is nothing high-functioning about it. During that stretch in January, when I spent five days sleeping on the floor of the PES, Logan talked about pain that never went away. He talked about his pain levels being a 7 or 8, and when they were that high, he would do anything to make that pain stop. Times like this is when we were most concerned about his safety. He had been talking about this pain for some time, and it was always considered emotional pain. But it was also always assumed that Logan had the words and the skills to translate his pain into symptoms and words that physicians and practitioners could understand. I wasn't so sure. I remembered when he was in third grade and slipped on wood chips and broke his wrist on the playground. He didn't tell his teacher. He waited until the end of the day and told his dad. He was taken in for an x-ray, but we weren't going to get the results till the next morning. With his hand in a sling, Logan felt he was able to go to school the next morning. That morning, his teacher checked in with my husband and said that Logan was doing pretty good. His teacher said he didn't think Logan's wrist was broken because he seemed happy and he was using that hand to write. My husband said the lab just called and his wrist was broken. Logan had a history of migraines, but during our inpatient marathon, I couldn't get a consultation with a neurologist, and I couldn't access migraine medication. Could he be experiencing neurological pain? There is no way to know. I tried to get him in to see an outpatient neurologist, but before I could get him an appointment, we would be back at PES. During many of his inpatient stays, I asked and asked and asked again for a consultation with neurology. I wanted a migraine treatment. I wanted an MRI. I wanted to rule out a brain tumor or a structural abnormality that could be causing pain. Again and again, I was told no. I'm not completely sure if I was told no because none of his doctors would listen to me or if I was told no because that is not how the system works. An MRI is an outpatient procedure. If sedation is required, kids cannot eat or drink for six or more hours before the procedure. You have to go through the ER. 
the medical ER, to be considered for an emergency MRI. And even then, you have to meet medical criteria. It's not easy. I know because a neurologist sent my youngest son to the ER for an emergency MRI, and we ended up having a huge showdown in the pediatric emergency room because the emergency MRIs are typically not a thing. It's not that the doctors were bad doctors. I understand that. They also had to work within the confines of an incredibly limited system. But I wanted to do everything possible to reduce Logan's pain levels, and I wanted answers. Logan also talked about a weight on his chest. He had been talking about it for months. Anxiety, he was told. Maybe. But he also talked about being out of breath when he played dodgeball and there is a family history of asthma. I wanted him tested for asthma. I wanted him tested for asthma while he was in the hospital, but he was hospitalized for psychiatric reasons and that does not give you access to an asthma specialist any more than being hospitalized for a heart condition gives you access to an eye doctor. When we finally were able to keep things stable enough to see an outpatient neurologist and an outpatient allergy and immunology doctor, Logan was prescribed migraine rescue medication to reduce the migraines, as well as albuterol to help with asthma symptoms. So now he has a migraine medication and an inhaler. It helps. It matters. They are part of the symptom picture, but it is still a complicated web, and we still aren't completely sure what causes the stress, the agitation, and the emotional discomfort he experiences, other than the explosive combination of puberty and ASD exacerbated by anxiety and depression. Now, all these months later, we have an extensive outpatient treatment team made up of many different kinds of doctors and therapists, a case manager, and an in-home support team. The benefit, of course, is that we have more help, and we need it because our son is struggling and the situation is completely heartbreaking. The downside is that we now need to coordinate care between a psychiatrist, a neurologist, a pediatrician, a social worker, a behavior analysis, and a slew of people from the community mental health. They all have their own thoughts and ideas, and there's confusion, disagreement, no clear path forward. I no longer look for the best practitioner. I look for someone that plays nice with others and someone that can open up appointments instead of making us wait two to three months to get in. This highly curated group of practitioners is working tirelessly to keep Logan out of the hospital. It's kind of funny because in the beginning, I used to think the hospital was the safest place for a teenager struggling with so many heavy burdens. After five days in the waiting room of PES, we learned the hard way that the hospital has little more to offer. Last August, Logan became eligible for Community Mental Health, or CMH, services through a program designed to support kids and keep them from needing repeat hospitalizations. I don't know how to even begin explaining my experiences with community mental health. It is filled with very good people who deeply care about children and families, and yet, even after you go through an extensive process of qualifying for services, it can be nearly impossible to access many of the services you're eligible for. Finally, in February, we started receiving Community Living Services, or CLS. Logan was spending up to eight hours a day, every day of the week, with someone from CLS. It was helping. It was, in fact, one of the only things preventing him from going back to the hospital. Now, in the wake of coronavirus, all CMH services have been suspended. 
We received text message notification on Tuesday morning, March 17th, that all services were suspended effective immediately. There is no transition plan. There were no further support services put into place, just the termination of services meant to keep our son and children like him out of the hospital. I do not fault the country or the state for suspending services given the state of emergency, but I do fault the system for not having a crisis plan. What did CMH think would happen to all of the children and families that suddenly lost services? Quite literally, care providers that were just yesterday allies and supports were abruptly removed from Logan's life. Surely, CMH knew that we would eventually flood psychiatric hospital waiting rooms because alone, without the help our children relied on, our son plain and simply did not have the coping skills he needed to make it through. I wanted to be the one to tell you my story, and yet I am unfortunately not the one reading it to you. Sunday afternoon, I took Logan back to PES. I packed up the back of my car with pillows, blankets, and camping mats just in case we were there all night long or longer. After hours of waiting, we were informed that there was a bed open in the unit upstairs and Logan was accepted. During this inpatient stay, we are working hard to bring together the outpatient team and to get everyone on the same page. We are working hard to streamline treatment so we can see more progress faster. But most of all, we are working on a crisis plan to get through the coronavirus shutdown. Maybe during his stay, we can find a way to reinstate some of his outpatient CMH services. Maybe a new piece of the puzzle will be revealed and progress will be made. We will keep pushing, waiting, and looking for answers. And maybe, just maybe, when he is discharged, our son will be smiling even if only for a day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Radioactive Chelsea. Sign up at our website, RadioactiveChelsea.com, to receive notifications for when the next podcast is released.